Well, uh, welcome back uh, to uh, the next part in Ecclesiastes. Um, again, yeah, if you've got your Bibles, keep it open because it'll really help us as we work through this passage together. Uh, a massive thank you to Ian, um, who has, has been working on this book much more than I have. He's the one who's going to get us through uh, the term. I'm learning from him <laughs> as we go through the, um, this book. Um, his knowledge of Ecclesiastes is great indeed, and we're very, very grateful for him, um, especially the small group leaders being able to go through it together um, on Saturday. That was uh, very, very helpful. And uh, this book is a remarkable book of wisdom that helps us, as Cheeks has been telling us, uh, like no other book in some respects, helps us deal with and wrestle with the seeming futility and frustration of a normal life. And if you've been here over the past two weeks, you'll know that this is where Ecclesiastes begins, and that is where it ends, with that theme of frustration, namely with uh, the theme word found in verse 2 of chapter 1, right at the end as well of the book in uh, verse 8 of chapter 12, we have the same sort of theme um, repeated again, and it's that word which the ESV translates as vanity. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Um, but as uh, Ian was saying to us over the last uh, few weeks, uh, vanity or, or meaninglessness, I think as the NIV has it, isn't the full totality of this word in Hebrew. The, the Hebrew word is havel. That, that word is better translated along the lines of, of vapor, breathiness, mist, something you can't catch hold of, you can't keep to yourself for any length of time. And, and, and we, we want to remind you of this constantly. As we go through this book, as we go through this passage this morning, it, it, it is not that everything is totally meaningless in and of itself or utterly purposelessness, uh, as much as we find those things to be true in this relentless life of not being fulfilled. But it is a much better thing to have in our heads, as Ian has been saying, this, this idea of life being like a, a breeze, like, like the wind, as, as we see here, like fog, like vapor, heaven. Everything's like breath. It's here now and it's gone in a moment. It's quickly lost and it's never to be recreated in the same way again. I was uh, walking with Toby in the fog uh, one day to school, and I said, Toby, this is us effectively standing in a cloud. And he was amazed. He always wanted to know what it was like to be in a cloud. I said, well, this is what it's like to be in a cloud. And, 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 and you could tell he, 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 was, he was sort of walking towards the fog in front of him, trying to stand in the bit of the fog that was in front of him, if that makes sense. So he could see it in front of him, and he tried to stand in front of him, and, and he could never get there. And, and he genuinely cried in frustration, Daddy, when I get to the bit of cloud I can see, I, I can't get there. I, I can't get into it. I don't understand. It's really frustrating. Well, that's very much what this word means, Hevel. I just can't ever quite... I can see it, but I, I can't ever quite reach it. It's gone as soon as I'm there. And that, as we've seen, the, sitting in this book over the past two weeks, is very much what life is like. Vapor of vapor, says the preacher. Fog of fog, says the preacher. Mist of mist, and ungraspable, unkeepable, unattainable, frustratingly fleeting, never fully secure, never totally fulfilling. I can never quite get there. That is life. And says the preacher, we know that that is life, and we do, don't we? I don't have to convince you of this this morning. <laughs> This is one of the very few books in the Bible where the preacher has to do little to convince you that it's right. That is what we experience every day, from the relentlessness of work, the lack of security, the perpetual worry, the unchanging cycles of our days, our weeks, our months, our year, month after month, year after year. A time of joy is all but immediately followed by a time of sorrow. Good news is followed by bad news. The 60th wedding anniversary followed by a cancer diagnosis or whatever. 
Or on a much smaller level, your child crying because they have to come back from a, from a holiday or an enjoyable play date, and they sort of say the immortal words, why do we have to say goodbye? I never want it to end. It, it just it always ends. It's never quite enough. And that reality never ends. The cycle of a vacuous, disappointing life never ends. The infernal nature of a difficult life is what we all experience. In other words, we all really feel Ecclesiastes. As one commentator puts it, Ecclesiastes is as much a book that is to be experienced as it is to be preached. And the preacher, the Ecclesiastes preacher, certainly knows that, that that's what life is like, more than anyone else on the planet, because he's tested every part of life. That's what we saw last week. Um, um, Ian's brilliantly been taking us through this grand experiment of the preacher, um, uh, this Solomon character. He's experimented with everything, this grand project. He's determined to find meaning and happiness in life, and he leaves nothing untouched. He tests pleasure and sex and outrageous wealth and massive projects and unimaginable feats of engineering. He tests possessions and study and knowledge, even wisdom itself. And at the pinnacle of all of life, having everything under his feet, no pleasure untried, no part of life untouched, even, verse 10 of chapter 2, which you saw last week, when pleasure was found at points and meaning was experienced and there was reward for good work, even then he comes to his grand conclusion in verse 11 of chapter 2. Then I considered, says the preacher, all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended doing it, and behold, all was vanity. All was fleeting, frustrating mistiness and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. All of it was fleeting, gone in a moment, never to be kept held off like breath. As the uh, very great Manchester United football Manager Alex Ferguson once said, in response to a question from a reporter about how he was feeling after having just won his um, latest of, of many Premier League titles, he said, oh, the, the feeling of euphoria and reward for all the hard work put into the year by the team is great indeed. But it lasts for about two seconds. And then the fear and the dread that sets in as I immediately turn to try and work out how to defend this title follows. The worry of tomorrow comes all too quickly. That is striking, isn't it? That genuine feeling of joy and success and reward, it's gone like a mist. And that is where we come to today's passage. Because, continues the preacher, as he continues working through the outcome of this grand experiment, the reason that all these pleasures are vanity and vacuous and like vapor is ultimately because they do not last at all. And that is ultimately because, he's worked out, of the deeply unfortunate and frustratingly inconvenient reality of death. And that is our first point uh, this morning, which sets everything up for us, I think, over the next few weeks. Uh, point one, death is the great leveler um, which comes to us all. You see, says the preacher in the first few verses of our passage this morning, verses 12 to 17, the reality is anything I work towards will never be kept by me. It will all be taken away from me because of death. And worse than that, says the preacher, what I worked for and gained will no more be remembered by others in the future because of my wisdom than the work of the fool who didn't do anything. Just read those verses with me. You'll find this point is made with breathtaking simplicity, more than I can describe it, in fact. Uh, verse 12. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. 
then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. That means he found he could do more stuff thinking wisely about how to work. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, even as that is true, I perceive that at the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also vanity. This is also like fog. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all have been long forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and striving after the wind. Can you see? The preacher looks at everything around him, everything under his feet, Everything he's gained, even all the wisdom that he's accrued over time, he is being wise, he's been able to build things, he's been able to pull all his knowledge together, and he catches sight of the village idiot playing in the streets beneath him and, and, and realises in horror that in the face of death, he has no more meaning or possessions than that village idiot. Not only that, but that village idiot will be left, after he himself has died, to play in all his palaces and the gardens that he's created without him having to lift a finger. The truth is, the wise and the foolish, the king and the village idiot, surmises the preacher, have nothing to distinguish between them in the light of death. Even if living wisely and working hard does produce more stuff, even more reward, ultimately it matters little. That's what verse 15 is all about. I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen to me also. Why have I been so very wise? What was the point? Living with knowledge and wisdom is also vapor-like. It does nothing for me in the face of death. Verse 16, how the wise dies just like the fool. He cries that out. Verse 17, because of this, I hated life. It's, it's infernally frustrating. And all because death gets in the way. It, it takes everything away. It, it ruins all progress, and it makes fools of us all. And so the question is, the, the, the question that Ian has been posing all the way through the series so far, the question that this book throws up and begs to be answered, is, well, what is the biblical answer to experiencing this life without ending ourselves in frustration? Because this book is otherwise bleak indeed, and if we're not careful, it can offer us no more hope than a nihilist, that is, a philosopher who believes that there is no meaning in the world at all because we all happen by chance. And because of that, life is the epitome of fruitlessness. In fact, extreme secularists would defend the argument of life, sometimes using the language of Ecclesiastes. Um, in a brilliant book uh, called The Universe Next Door by James Sire, if you've never read it, get it and read it. It's, it's a brilliant overview of the worldviews that the world um, 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 wants to create to, in order to find meaning, all stacked up against the Bible. It's a brilliant book. And Sire quotes Jean-Paul Sartre, who was a famous existentialist philosopher, a secular philosopher, and, and Sartre famously says this about life. He says, every existing thing is born without reason, prolongs itself out of weakness, and dies by chance. I leaned back, he says, and I closed my eyes, but the images forewarned that followed immediately leapt up and filled my closed eyes with brief existences, existence that was full, uh, fullness, which man can never abandon. I know it was the world, the naked world, suddenly revealing itself to me, and I choked with rage at this gross, absurd being. Happy New Year to you too, Jean-Paul Sartre. It's a very happy start to a book indeed. The, the title of that book, incidentally, is called Nausea. 
brilliantly titled, Life is Nauseating. I'm, I'm sick of it, this unfulfilling reality that I can never abandon or escape. And that is very much the worldview of the secular existentialists, the nihilists. They would basically say the world has no meaning, it's got no purpose, it was formed by chance, and it is pointless. And so they continue, if you want to get through your day in your life, you have to try and create some kind of meaning that will get you through to the end of the day. So it's the best you can do. You have to create reason for stuff, create some kind of value system which helps you through your day, knowing that at rock bottom there isn't really any hope in life. And if you create enough meaning and purpose, as fake as it might be in reality, you'll be busy enough so that you won't remember that the world is meaningless. It's the philosophical equivalent of actively drinking yourself into a stupor, just, just, just to forget. That is very basically where the world is with this issue of life, and it is depressing in the extreme. And in our society, well, that looks like hedonism, doesn't it? There's no point in anything. The Earth will crash into the sun in a billion years. We're all going to die, some sooner than others. Let's all go out with everything. We might as well get ourselves foggy with enough pleasures, and it's just going to keep us going, because we're going to be gone tomorrow. To misquote a direct quote from Ecclesiastes, we may as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Go for it. No consequences, no regrets. So this brings us back to our first question. How on earth, in a book of the Bible, which seems to resonate with so much in a fallen world, that ends in death, differ from that depressing worldview of extreme secularism? Because it sounds so, so similar here. Well, this is wonderfully why Ecclesiastes is written. For it is real for us in the real world, but also offers unimaginable hope that the secularist can't. For Ecclesiastes isn't written by a secular philosopher, as some people think. It's actually written by a believer, someone who is working out how to live in this world under a good God. And that is because, we know that is because, his understanding of the world is profoundly shaped by some of the biggest truths of the Bible. In other words, even in his confusion and vexations and frustration, which we all experience, there are certain biblical truths that he knows that is going to help him steer him through this course in life. And the two truths that he recognizes as bringing up this tension between human desiring, good, fulfilling purpose on the other hand and, 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 and recognition that the world is like vapor on the other, all hampered by death, the two conclusions he comes to is that, first, the earth has been created originally good and perfect by loving God. That's the first truth he holds to. We're going to see that. Secondly, that this good and perfect world has been cursed by a good and just God, angry at humanity's rebellion against him. And nowhere, I think, are these truths that underpin the whole of the book of Ecclesiastes seen more clearly than in the realm of work and toil, which is where we are now. This brings us to our second point. Death is the great leveler that comes to us all because a good world has been cursed by a good and just God. And we see that all the way through Ecclesiastes. In fact, as we move on through Ecclesiastes, this morning, in our verses, we come to a new word that we haven't actually had yet. It's found in verse 24, and that word is God. Elohim. For the first time, we get to see the glaring difference between the secularist and the preacher. And that difference is God. A God too, who, in, in verse 24, has given everything from his hand rather than a life born out of chance. Here we're beginning to see the difference in Ecclesiastes. 
And the more we read on from this verse, the more we see that it's clear that this preacher understands that God is the one who made everything and controls everything. In chapter 12, which is where we end, he calls God creator. That's his big conclusion. God is creator. Chapter 11, he describes God as being the maker of all things. Next week, we hear the words that God has created everything beautiful in its time. That language harkens back to that reading in Genesis we heard from Tim earlier. Right back at the dawn of time and matter, we're told that everything that exists has come about by the design of a good God. And more than that, the world that God makes in Genesis is a good world. It doesn't just have good stuff in it. It's not that oh, the mountains look good and the seas and the lights in the sky, they're nice. But that it has God's blessing. It is inherently good. It's perfect. It's beautiful. He makes man in his image and blesses man. And God says over humanity, that's very good, deeply blessed, divinely beautiful. The writer of Ecclesiastes is not an existentialist, a secular philosopher. Here we are in a meaningless, accidental world. Ecclesiastes believes that God made everything around us and for us. And that everything was designed by God who wanted to bless us and make it a joy for us. And in particular, says the preacher, this is no more clearly seen than actually in the realm of work. If you um, go back to Genesis 1, on page 1, and, and just notice that work, the business of being in charge of the world, of being dominion over the world, is a good thing. Verse 28 uh, uh, of chapter 1, God has just made man and woman. And we read this, God bless them. God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, have dominion over the sea and uh, uh, the fish of the sea, the birds of the air over every living creature that moves. God says, I've given you every plant on the face of the earth that is good to yield its fruit for you. You can eat of it. Every beast of the earth I give to you. Birds of the heavens are to you. Everything that creeps on the ground I give to you. Everything that has the breath of life is yours. I've given you every green plant for food. And, and it was so, and God said, it was really good. So controlling the world and full, ruling the world and, and eating the food from the world and the plants that God has given, being the zookeepers of the world, it, it's a blessed work and it's very good. It, it's in, work is inherently perfect in its original form and from God's hand. But there's another respect, perspective alongside that in Ecclesiastes, isn't there? The recognition in the world of work that has been created so good has in fact gone so wrong. And everything went wrong when man refused, man and woman refused to live in God's world under his rule and blessing. And because of that, God cursed humanity under his judgment. And specifically, he cursed work. Genesis 3.17. He said to the man, cursed is the ground because of you. In your pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The world is created good, but it is cursed. And you very much see the language of that curse all the way through Ecclesiastes, don't you? Chapter 320, which we'll come to next week, all go to one place, all are from the dust and to dust all return. That is pretty much an exact quote from Genesis 3. Ecclesiastes knows about this God-ordained curse over man and work and that death itself ultimately frustrates all of it. Well, Ecclesiastes 7.13, which I think is a really intriguing verse in Ecclesiastes, it says this, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? 
It's a very striking verse. Who can make straight? Well, God has made crooked. God has twisted the world and no one can unravel it. He has frustrated the world. No one can rightly make sense of it. He has made understanding of the world like mist and no one can properly lay, lay hold to it. And why has he done that? Well, because of our failure to love and trust and obey this holy God. You see, here is a very deep thread in Ecclesiastes that runs through the whole of the book of there being this strange dichotomy at the heart of human existence. That we live in a world full of beauty and joy and happiness because God has blessed it and made it good. But we also live in a world of sadness and futility and frustrating and uh, frustration and that, that, that infernal sense of going around in circles of pain and death because we messed up. And in his just anger, God judged and twisted the world. And our experience recognizes Ecclesiastes is, is, is shaped by both of those realities. We live in a world that is created, but we live in a world that is cursed because of sin. And that is the combination that gives our life real poignancy to our experience. If, if, if everything happened to you from the moment you were born was only unrelenting, miserable pain, well, that would be horrifically grim. There would be no poignancy to that kind of life. It wouldn't be worth living. We would all choose to commit voluntary suicide. But, but life, wonderfully, isn't like that. The world isn't as bad as it could be, says Ecclesiastes. There's a mixture of joy and beauty that makes every day of life worth grabbing and enjoying at some points. And yet that is mixed with the pain and the frustration and the despair that make you sometimes wonder whether life is worth living where suicide is sadly an increasing reality of our times because people haven't seen the goodness of a creator God. It, you see, it is possible for you to say in the same breath, and I've heard some of you say this, I love my job, but I hated this day. And Ecclesiastes understands that life exists within those truths, that God made the world good, we stuffed it up, and God cursed the world in his judgment. So looking through that darkened glass, what does that dichotomy mean for work? Well, thirdly, the main application to this part of Ecclesiastes and work in this realm of this good but twisted world which is frustrated by death, knowing this, being wise to this reality, means that we can accept the God-imposed frustration of good but cursed work. You can maybe resonate with the frustration of the preacher here in chapter 2, verse 18, as you contemplate what you're going to meet in the office tomorrow or at college or at uni or whatever. Let's just read that. Chapter 2, verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, that I must leave it all to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be a wise or a fool? Yet he will be a master of all for which I toiled and use my wisdom under the sun. This is also fogginess. It's so frustrating. It makes me wonder whether the uh, preacher has fallen out with his son at this point as he looks at his school report and groans and thinks, goodness, I love you, but you don't have a clue, mate. I, I actually cannot believe that you get to inherit this. It's so annoying. Maybe you feel like that about a project that you're working on. It's been your pride and joy. You've bled over it, spent hours over it, lost holidays to it, but it's slowly taking shape and, and you've poured your heart and soul into it. One of you actually told me once that your spreadsheet was like a work of art, which I really appreciate. And, and, and suddenly budget cuts come to the office, there's a reshuffle, and your project overnight is taken away from you. And it's given to someone else to finish and you're moved on to somewhere else. And, and you cry, I can't believe Alan from accounts is going to take this from me. I've done all the hard work, such hard work. And he hasn't got a clue. It'll be ruined. All my hard work lost. And the bits that aren't lost, well, I don't even get the credit. 
This is fogginess, the mistiness of work. Nothing lasts. Nothing you would want to get rightly credited to you will end up being credited to you. Nothing stays with you. And even the stuff that you do get credit for, your house, your money, your rewards for working well, well, all of that doesn't last either. You'll die. And the tax man will take a remarkable amount of it before your children do, and even your children might not use it rightly. Either way, others are benefiting from your toil. And so the preacher goes on a rant here, doesn't he, verse 20. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labours under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone else who didn't toil for it. Grumble, grumble, grumble. This is also vanity, a great evil. What is man from all the toil and striving of heart which we toils under the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, his work is vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This is also hevel. He metaphorically goes out into the garden and sort of beats a big hedge with a big stick. It's, it's wincingly frustrating. It's achingly unfair. And if that is your experience tomorrow morning at work, I hope it isn't, but it might be. At some points it will be. Remember what the preacher knows. That this is not the perfect world that God created. This is the cursed world because of the terrible evil of rebellion against God. And so even as you're dealing with Alan in accounts and your lost project, or those of you who are in the NHS where, where everything is unfinished and frustrating, or you're in your inbox of a thousand pages long with emails that are filled with bile you wouldn't believe, preach to yourself the truth that you are working in the world that has turned its back on the Creator God. It makes sense that this is what life and work is like. And because it makes sense, it's not the total despair of the existentialist who has given up trying to work out what's going on, who has got nothing to go on other than chance, at which he can't get angry. You can't get angry at chance. Knowing God as creator allows us to see why the world is the way it works and why the world of work is the way it works. The frustration makes sense. The graspblessness of a breath-like, vapor-like, vacuous working existence makes sense to the Christian. And because it makes sense, because it hangs true, because it resonates with our experience, the, the believer can stand back and accept it far more readily than someone through whom not only is life vapor-like, but there's not even a reason for it. And that is wisdom, godly wisdom. That's biblical wisdom, not the wisdom that the preacher says is vanity, only a few verses back. That's the wisdom of just knowing how to make good life choices. This wisdom is the wisdom that says, I know life is hard, and I know why life is hard. Not because we're alone and created by chance and all is lost, but because God, my creator, has frustrated this world, and he is in charge. And that is exactly where we come to land this morning and get ready for next week. For in a life where death is the great leveler which comes to us all, because a good world has been cursed by a good and just God, uh, which means that we can understand and accept this God-imposed frustration on good but cursed work, it doesn't surprise us. That all means, point four, that we can actually enjoy the work that we have been given as a gift by God's hand, knowing it's fleeting while aiming for eternity. And that's the conclusion the preacher in his biblical wisdom comes to, verse 24. Even after being screamingly frustrated at the world of work, actually, says the preacher, there is nothing, knowing that there is a good God, there is nothing better for a person than he should eat, drink, and, and, and find enjoyment in his toil. 
This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? But to the one who pleases him, to the believer, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This is also vanity and striving after the wind. You see, knowing that this God is a good creator God means that even if work is frustrating, there are still traces of goodness and enjoyment in it. But even more than that, with godly Ecclesiastes' wisdom, the wisdom that God has given to the believer, verse 26, we know that it will never fulfill us ultimately, and and it will never be everything to us, which means that we don't have to pretend to make it those things. Which means we can, verse 24, do nothing better than eat and drink and find enjoyment in our toil. The bits I do enjoy and work, I'm going to hold on to that. That was great. The the rest of the day was awful, but, but that was a really good moment. And I'm so grateful for that because I know God creates us and he gave me enjoyment in this fleeting life. That has incredible meaning. Our work is less pressured for us to have to chase after it to satisfy us. We know it can't and so we can enjoy it. Unlike the secularist who has to chase after it to satisfy him to get it through the day. He has to do that. That's how he doesn't kill himself. That's what verse 26 means, incidentally. To the believer, we have been given wisdom as to why the world is frustrating and we live lightly, able to rightly enjoy what we can from the hand of the good God, recognizing that he's in total control. However, to the sinner, the unbeliever, the secularist, the Sartres of the world, all they are left with is the business of gathering and collecting. That is all they've got. That is all they've got. They have to try and keep hoarding all this stuff. They've got to try and work really hard to keep gathering and collecting. Come on, another day, another day. We've got to keep going, got to keep going. It's desperate stuff. Money, success, fame, time. Even though all of it will be gone at death, I've got to keep going. Even though all they seek to satisfy is hevel, can't be grass. All of it is mistiness and fogginess. That is all they've got. You see, as believers, Ecclesiastes is a book of deep, deep encouragement and optimism as it prepares us as Christians for the next 30 or 40 years or whatever, however many years we've got left of frustrating graft in a frustrating world, but not in a world where all the good has been sucked out completely and everything happens by chance. The world is not as bad as it could be where work has no value at all, but where we see the good we do find in the frustrating work is a gift by God's hand. And peering over into next week, we realize that that good actually has a point recognizing as the preacher does that this creator God will recreate again by making everything we find hevel and frustrating new and perfect again in an eternity that God has promised in Jesus, that that eternal longing which has been established in the hearts of every single human on the planet. There is so much more beauty and meaning to come where the crooked will be made straight, where a vapor-like existence will make way for us enduring forever, where fulfillment and purpose and meaning will be continuously and never-endingly discovered. And knowing that, knowing that our creator God is a good God that gives everything by his hand, and knowing that he is getting ready for something much greater for us that will not be heaven, now... I enjoy taking each fleeting day as it comes. Not just longing for the not yet, but living in the now. 
enjoying it as much as I am able as a gift from the hand of a good creator God because I can, because he created it for me and he wants me to eat, drink and to enjoy life and work in him, recognizing that everything comes from his hand. Let me pray for us as we close. Father God, thank you um, very much for your word to us this morning. For, for, forgive me if <laughs> that sermon was foggy. We, we, we just prayed that we would take the wonderful truths from it. Thank you that you are our creator God. Thank you the fact that you are our good creator God changes everything about how we live life, how we understand life, how we get through life, how we see the end of life. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be people who, who as much as we wrestle with and understand that life is frustrating and fleeting, that, that, that we would recognize that we are allowed to enjoy what we can from God's hand, that, that, that we can work hard in it, that we can put our best efforts to it, and that we're not worried about it being lost, that we, we don't seek it out to fully satisfy us, that it isn't our God, our idol, that it isn't the fact that, 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 that drives us to do things. Father God, may it be that you do all those things, and putting us into the work that you've allowed us to enjoy and to look at the heavenly father god and say thank you thank you that we have this life that we are allowed to dedicate to the lord jesus and, and, and spend with each other fleetingly as it is with as we'll see next week in the light of eternity waiting for for real work and life and godliness and holiness and permanency and perfection in eternity in the lord jesus christ and um, before the father god and we praise you for all these things please father may this really materially help us. May it be that tomorrow, as, as hard as we find our work, may it be that we find moments of beauty and may we credit them all to you. And even in the frustration, may we thank you for, for the life that you have us to lead. May we dedicate all of it uh, to your service. We pray these things in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.